Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Nancy, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm definitely excited for today's episode. So yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. It's interesting because, so how I came across you and your work was um, I was actually heading to Mexico for my annual trip. So every year around the holidays, my family and I would go down to Mexico. And so I'd, I'd pack my books, you know, my business books, all my my nerdy books that I had uh, ordered, but never got a chance to read. And one of the books was the Persuasive Presentations book you wrote for HBR, that HBR oh. published back in 2012, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is funny because I was like, you know what? This is one skill it, I think if I can improve on would make a huge difference in my life. So here I am on the beach in Playa del Carmen with a highlighter, like highlighting things in your book. And that's how it started. And I'm like, I got to I gotta check out your work and, and what you're up to. Oh, and yeah, that book sells real well. It's kind of my least visual book, but it, it does so well. I'm glad you found me that way. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So tell me a, a little bit about like your journey, you know, so you you, you have your company Duarte, which we're going to get into, but I want to I want to understand like your upbringing and how you got into this like field of like being a communication and design like expert. Oh, I, I appreciate it. I, you know, I, people ask me like, oh my gosh, did you know, since you were little, you know, like as if life is a straight path, but in a way I did, um, I did know when I was pretty young, what I did not want. So I was raised in a, by a, a narcissistic mom, like uh, she was, uh, and a narcissist is missing the empathy gene. So my whole childhood had economic and emotional trauma in it. And I just knew that I wanted to be different than that. And it really shaped me. So all of our body of work has models for empathy because I didn't have empathy modeled for me. So I wanted to make a toolkit for somebody, you know, and others like me. And so that kind of started on this journey and um, the company you know, started by making slides. We were, that was such an emerging technology back then, you know, it was brand, brand new. We started when PowerPoint was still in black and white, if you could believe it, we printed it on overhead transparencies. But, you know, before these tools, before the computer was able to make presentations for us, writing speeches was a crafting, like we crafted words and then once these tools got in the hands of the masses, nobody knew what they were doing. Like people were making pretty jacked up presentations. <laughs> um, and so that we really hit a nerve uh, with our business. And it was, it just feels like an honor to def- 
kind of put some definition around this medium of the spoken word. And yeah, it's just a real honor to have, we've been doing this for 32 years. So it's well, actually I'm 34 years now. I keep um, but yeah, it's been a real honor to build kind of a process and a principle around this medium. So when you were younger, I mean, did you consider yourself a, a good communicator? Did you like English and like writing and, and all that stuff? Or no. is it something that kind of like grew and evolved over time? I feel like I, I had to work hard for my grades. And so some of the practices that we did in school, like use three by five cards to structure, you know, something, those kinds of things stuck. But by the time I got to college, I went to one year of colleges are all is at uh, University of Southern Mississippi. And I got a C minus in speech communication and a D in English. And now I write books in English about speech <laughs> communication. So it didn't go so well for me. And, and, and it was a bit like a scarlet letter on me because I really felt like I wanted to do that. I, lo- I enjoyed kind of traveling and speaking. Like I wasn't afraid to stand up in front of youth groups and prepare messages. But I just the world, I guess, would have um, marked me as a failure in it. And mm-hmm. so then it was by happenstance that uh, moved to the Silicon Valley my husband started to do technical illustrations on this brand new fangled thing called a Mac. And um, we just got, we slipped into presentations. It wasn't by design. It was just what was demanded the most of us. And we jumped into it that way. And I couldn't be happier that that happened. Yeah. That, that's an interesting story. And, and I, before we jump into more about like the founding of Duarte, cause I, I want to dive into that. Definitely. Um, you said something about empathy that I want to, you know, unpack here. So I, I went, I've been to three courses at Duarte actually. So I did visual story, which was great. And then I did captivate and then I did data story, which we'll, we'll get into that too. And for those listeners out there, I mean, if you're looking for like a really good program, I mean, the, the, the courses you guys put on, I mean, are, are absolutely amazing. I love them. They're so transformative, you know, they're they're Um, so transformative. And and that was the thing is that's what I was looking for is like, I didn't want to just go to another workshop, right. Where they're just cramming things down your, you know, your, your throat and just, you know, you, you walk away with all this stuff, but then you don't, you don't do anything about it. But I'll tell you there, the one thing is kind of like the gut punch that I like, I inflicted on myself, but I remember I was sitting in a visual story. Okay. And I remember the instructor was talking and, and he was saying, you know, your presentations like have to begin with empathy. And I was like, huh, that's kind of an interesting like combination there, like presentations and empathy. And maybe this is just my, um, my lack of maturity at the time or lack of skills in communication. But here I was doing all these presentations around the country, right? But I was doing presentations my way. And I is delivering them in a way I was comfortable delivering them yeah. instead of like being empathetic to the audience. And it was really like, oh, wow. Like, like I said, it's like a gut punch, like, geez, you know, I've been doing it all wrong. So tell me a little bit more about like this idea of empathy. Cause you, I mean, you, you talk about it all the time and it's in your books and it's in your, your courses. And so let's explore this a little bit more. Yeah, I love that. The um, purpose of a presenter, I mean, sometimes you're so caught up and you're trying to remember what to say and you're rehearsing your slides. So you're spending a lot of time in your own head just to be ready. The first thing you need to do is use the audience and their needs as a lens. And then you build all your content based on what they need or how they receive information and, and not necessarily how you may naturally communicate might not be 
the best way to do it. Because in reality, like if you have this great presentation and the audience doesn't run out of the room with your idea adopted, your presentation failed. So really the audience holds the power in the room and not you. So you need to make sure that you're delivering things to them in a way they process information. In my TED talk, I talk about that where sometimes as a presenter, we think we're the central figure or the hero. Like you walk in a room, you're well lit, you're talking the most in the room, people came to hear you. It's really easy to get caught up in that and think that you're the hero of the room. (laughs) Whereas in reality, you're not, your audience is. Your audience is the one who is going to make or break the success of your idea, not you. So your role as a presenter is that of mentor. So a mentor in myths and movies, they help the hero get unstuck or they bring a magical gift or a special tool. And that's your role as a presenter is, oh, I'm here to humbly serve you, help you get unstuck, give you a tool you didn't have before, right? And so it's a mindset shift of what you need to do so your idea gets traction. No, and, and I agree. And, and it's it's so interesting like when you explain it that way, because I think so many of us, whether we're going into a board presentation or whether we're presenting to a company or, you know, even in, in personal situations where we're like getting up and trying to persuade people or influence people or, or deliver impact. I think so often we think of it like that, like, okay, I'm the hero. Like mm-hmm. I, all the responsibility resides on my shoulders to like deliver this message. But yeah. really that's not our purpose, what you're saying. Right, right. Our purpose is to make the world a different place. You know, hopefully anything that we have to deliver that warrants us us to present is going to, you know, create human flourishing in some way or or why present. So, yeah, that's interesting. So this idea of empathy, because I think the number one thing people can do, this is my opinion, um, especially from a leadership perspective, is to practice more empathy. So what does that, what does empathy even mean? Like we've all heard like different definitions, but to you, like what does empathy mean? And like, how have you seen that like shape your relationships or your career or other efforts you put forward? Yeah, I, I look at empathy. There's a lesser known storytelling device where the hero puts on the skin of someone else, usually an enemy. So you think about how in Star Wars, they put on the stormtrooper outfit Or Mm -hmm. in Wizard of Oz, they, I don't know what the little guards, you know, what the guards were called, but they dressed up as the guards and got access to the witch's castle. And Mm -hmm. Avatar is a great example, right? The, The blue people are our enemy and then Jake becomes blue and he figures out they're not. So what happens is when you put on the skin of someone else and you look at it through their eyes, it does one of two things for you. It it gives them access to their heart, (laughs) you know, like, just like you get access to the kingdom and it gives you access to their perspective. So I think it's just really important to take a trip in someone else's shoes, in your audience's shoes, to really see the world from their eyes before you do almost anything. Uh, even before you start your day, right? It's just really yeah. important to try to obtain perspective that you had not considered before. Another thing I try to do in every talk is I picture my enemy, like the most fiercest enemy of my idea. Like who's going to be entrenched against it? Who's going to be an activist against it? Whatever, right? You just have to imagine it because even if it's not going to happen, it doesn't hurt to imagine who the enemy of your idea is too, and really try to put on their skin. And then what you wind up doing is planting um, kind of anecdotes 
or vaccines, if you want to call it, where you you protect your idea from their perspective so that your idea still gets adopted. So you have to really think about resistance, who might resist, who might try to tear it down, and then build narrative around that. Because it, it would be foolish to think, I'm going to stand up, everyone's going to love me. Yeah, <laughs> it's right, not just exactly. would like that. It's, it's not the way it is. Yeah, exactly. And just standing up in front of a group and saying, you know, what? I'm going to deliver this message the same way every time to these yeah. five different groups. Yeah. And I don't, you know, this is, this is my agenda and it, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. I've learned that the hard way. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's go back to like the, the founding of your company. So I remember I was in one of your, your workshops and during lunch, like you came in and you talked to the group and people asked some questions. And it, at the time, you know, just in my business that I, I was um, doing is, you know, I, I was struggling with this idea of like straddling, right? And like with business and with strategy, a lot of organizations, you know, they, they try to do this and they try to do that and they try to do this. Oh, wait, but we need to do this for this customer. And, and then next thing you know, you're straddled, you're all over the place, right? <laughs> and I remember you telling a story, uh, you said, you know, before the financial crisis, right? Back in 2007, eight, nine, whenever it was, you know, your business was, and, and correct me if I have this wrong, but your business was more into like marketing overall. Like you're still doing the communication stuff, but you're doing other things along with the communication. Did I have that right? Yeah, we were a presentation company, but we kept denying that that's what we did. So our website would say that we do presentations, but we did have print multimedia and web up there, mm-hmm. but about 75% of our business was still presentations. We were kind of like in an identity crisis because my designers wanted, you know, to do web and print. So yeah, so yeah, we cut everything out. We read, I read good to great Jim Collins book that says, if there's one thing you can do and do that thing well and make money at that and be passionate about it, do just that one thing. And that was when it, we decided we could probably be best in the world at presentations and communications. And it probably took a lot of courage because I remember you saying it was during that financial crisis when you know, the phone was still ringing and the people who were calling you up, they're looking for presentations and you're like, okay, we really have something here. You know, obviously they turn to us even when money's tight, when budgets are cut because the quality of work and the the value that you're delivering. Um, And that was a big aha moment. So I, I mean, it it probably took a little bit of courage though to say, Hey, look, I'm just going to focus on what I'm really good at. And so like, how does that translate not just with like Duarte and like your business, but like in personal life. And what are your thoughts on that? If somebody's either struggling in their business by doing too many things or in their personal life, or, you know, they just have too much going on and, and they have to say no to some things. Yeah. Um, what's I'm been so, your experience? With that? Yeah. I'm really good at saying no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the power of it, I learned it really early on, like focus on just this one thing. And I feel like in, we, I, like I said, I don't have to belabor that I'm an old, old, old hat at all of this. But I think in every one of the downturns we've had, I've done a counterintuitive move. So we have a consultancy and we have a training business, and our training business is just growing like crazy. And so I did something counterintuitive on the consulting side, as I cut a hundred customers out. And so saying no, and and we grew 
So we shrank down to 25 and those 25 brands grew a lot. So saying no, it's like pruning in the winter, right? You cut off all this other stuff and then you bloom more beautifully and bear more fruit later. So I'm also really good about that with my time. People will come out and be like, wow, you're busy. You're just so busy. And I thought, why does everyone think I'm so busy? I would say I'm protected. I have my priorities straight. So I prioritize my family and then I prioritize rest. And then I prioritize the demands on my time. So I sleep. I mean, I sleep. I don't sacrifice my sleep and I don't sacrifice my grandkids or my kids um, or my in-laws, like my little extended family. But so I don't let things pull on me that flip that priority system. So if someone could call, I don't know how long you probably had to wait for me to be on your podcast, but that's not because yeah, I'm busy. I know right. it's because I'm protected. <laughs> So it's like, hey, if they could wait, we'll schedule it in because I parse my calendar a certain way so that I have margin in my life. But it, it probably wasn't always like that. I mean, because I imagine, you know, in the early days of the business, like, didn't you have to like crank and like really okay. grind it out? Yeah, it yeah. I'm talking like like I'm an expert at it now. <laughs> mm-hmm. When when my kids were little and the business was flipping, growing so fast. I was only getting one REM cycle of of sleep. So I was up, got the kids off, worked a big, hard day, got home at six, put them to bed at nine. And then I still worked from nine to 2 a.m. So I only slept from 2 a.m. to six every night. And I did that for maybe about a decade. I don't don't recommend it, but you know what? I wanted it. I wanted, loved my kids. Uh, I wanted to be there for both my kids and and loved growing a business. So it hasn't always been that way. But what's interesting about that um, is as a woman in business, that's all I could do. Um, I didn't have time to golf on the weekend with my dude buddies. I didn't have time to go to drinks after work. Like none of the social things that build networks, they just were non-existent. And it's interesting about women in the Silicon Valley. It was almost like we all were kind of hand to plow and just getting our jobs done. About 2006, about 50 of us kind of poked our heads up and were like, whoa, okay, my kids are almost out the door. I'm going to have some bandwidth in my life. And these friendships started to form. But before then, everyone was just like, all I could do is be really good at my job and do my best at parenting. So it's just kind of interesting how how um, I have not always had margin, but I am proud of the priorities I chose. No, I love that. So let's talk about that. So as a woman, do you feel like you face like a different set of struggles as you developed your business? And if so, how did you combat those? I think that's an interesting question. I, I, you know, I was only 28 when we popped down here into the Bay Area from Northern California, a little tiny town up there. And I think because I was always the outside consultant and there were not that many people at the time that even knew what a PC was and how to hook up a printer. I mean, it was just so like revolutionary back then. And so I was always the external consultant coming in. And I just asked my husband too, I'm like, hey, hey, I'm gonna get this question about has the company had an impact that I'm a woman? And he's like, I don't think so. Like I, I, I was good at just showing up and starting to boss the CEOs around almost. <laughs> right. um, yeah. So I, that part didn't have an impact, but definitely what I was just covering did in the sense that I didn't have a, a really well-developed network or, I mean, I did as much as I could, but I felt like um, 
in the ways the clients treated me, my gender had no uh, play on that. But the, uh, some of the best things I did and saved my marriage and my sanity was start to hire out services that save me time. So I got to a place where I was like, you know what? I'm going to start spending my money. I don't spend money on things. I'm not really a things person, but Mm -hmm. I will spend money on something that saves me time. So if I can have someone come clean my house, if I could have someone, you know, manage my gardener and my pool person, whatever, right? Like if I can have someone buy me time, I pay someone to wrap my Christmas gifts. Now, some people love to wrap their own gifts. But if I have, I have a personal assistant. Um, so I, I, I like to buy myself back time. And that was something that I figured out way too late. Hey, real quick. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level, or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Interesting. That's huge. I mean, do you think, do you think like, okay, so you're, you're really good at managing your time now um, and, and creating like these buffers. So do you think that you miss out on opportunities because you like prioritize things or do you think you're actually enabled to capture more opportunities because like you're more intentional? Does that make sense? Cause I I think like so often I can fall in the trap where I'm just like going, going and going, like going so fast. But then I, I often wonder how many opportunities just like pass me by because I'm so busy and I don't create a holding place for those opportunities. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I have a holding place. I would say for opportunities. Yeah. I don't have FOMO. Like I don't have that fear of missing out. I made some choices to uh, during uh, COVID there were uh, Ted I'm, I'm part of the Ted community and they gathered a couple times and granted my 40 year anniversary was during one of the weeks, but I just decided, you know what? I'm overwhelmed. I just don't feel like I want to be in a room with a bunch of people hugging and you know what I mean? And I was yeah. like, wow, that was a big thing. Cause I, you know, you don't want your Ted attendance to lapse. But I was like, you know what? I just, I just needed that. Now there's other times where I'm like, oh my gosh, let's get over there to Ted and build some relationship with some Tedsters. But I don't usually have fear of missing out. Sometimes I pursue something like I really want to be part of the Thinkers 50. And so sometimes when I will say, well, maybe I'll take the time this year to fill out the application. And I did that and was rejected. <laughs> so that's always a bummer. But eventually someday, right? Maybe if I keep trying, um, I'll make it. But I don't know. Uh, I don't. I'm ready to in a season right now where I'm ready to give back. And so I just kind of wrote our, our company. How's my company going to give back? And, you know, what's the people group we want to you know, pull out of poverty? And can I make it so narrow that we actually can see that we pulled some people out of poverty? You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in that mode of life too. So it's not like I'm, I have fear of missing out when I feel like I'm going to be the one who's starting to give back versus I'm, I'm the giver instead of the taker in this new season, I guess is a way to say it. Yeah, no. And I like that. And it, it's interesting. I just had a conversation with a, a very successful real estate developer um, here in Denver. And, you know, he's getting to the point in his career where he's like, Steve, I've made, you know, I've made all the money I need. 
I'm very successful. Um, cool. But now I'm like looking at it and saying, now what? You know, yeah. now what do I do? I mean, money's just money, right? I mean, you, it doesn't buy happiness. It, it, it doesn't buys buy happiness. a housekeeper, but it doesn't buy happiness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it doesn't like, so, I mean, as you, so like you've built this successful business, right? You've cranked, you know, so many hours in your life. I mean, going a decade off like four hours of sleep is a lot. So like you, you put in like the work and, and like you said, now you're starting to, you know, rethink things as you move forward. And like, where are you at in life when it comes to rethinking like these next few chapters yeah. um, and like the impact that you have? Like, do you think about that or are you just yeah. still so into like the Duarte building the company and managing it and everything else that you don't, you don't get an opportunity to do that? You know, the uh, company has been a living, breathing thing that I've had to care for, right? As I I've gone through seasons of trying to not remove, but distance myself and see if it could run without me. So when your name is on the door and you're the one with the Ted talk or, you you know, because we've got 140 people or something now, it's hard to not have people link me with the company. And I haven't done client work in almost 20 years, which has been really nice. That's how I got to write the books and all of those kinds of things. But we went through a season when my TED Talk took off. It rocked my world. I just um, posted a video about it on LinkedIn, too, because the business just freaked out, grew. I became a public speaker in addition to doing my real job. And I wasn't present at the company for about three years. And the culture very quickly went into a state of decay. And it's taken about six. We're already six years into rebuilding it. How quickly it falls and how much elbow grease and grunt work and communication it takes to get it to rise again. And we're very close. I mean, we still have work to do, but that has been a lot of work. And the big key is in this last year and a half, I finally have a highly capable, competent executive team. I have a team where we're aligned on our values. We're aligned on the goal. We're aligned. There's just, you know, we can contend over an idea, share our opinions, but we all leave the room aligned. And we all know that we're kind of an unstoppable team right now. So I'm in a season of greater margin. So I was, you know, doing things like, I was having to drive the team that was buttoning down the hatches on IT. And I have someone that's taken all of that account. You know, I've, I've hired well on that team. And I feel, to be honest, I'm excited because I feel like I'm ready to write again. And I haven't felt that now for three years, not since data story. I haven't even had a brooding sense like I was ready to write again. So that's part of how I give back is to write beautiful work that changes lives. So I feel I can feel the stirring to do that again. Well, and I mean, your books are like well-written and they're, they're beautiful. So let's talk about data story um, because I think obviously everybody knows there's so much data out there and it like continues Mm -hmm. to like um, accelerate exponentially. And, you know, the other day I was, I was reading an article and Kathy Wood, you know, the, the CEO of ARK Invest, she's a very successful investor and um, she's known for making these like wild predictions and a lot of them coming true. And she was talking about how like AI, um, artificial intelligence, you know, can be a, you know, $80 trillion opportunity. I think she said 30 trillion before she revised it to 80. And so, but I think the point is that there's all the state out there, right? Yeah. Um, everybody's trying to sort through it and, and, and communicate it. So it's, it's interesting that, 
you know, you have this expertise on those two things, data and communication. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And, and how do you feel about the phrase, uh, the data speaks for itself? Yeah. Yeah. Data is pervasive. Someone said uh, data is the new oil, right? I think that's because the volume of it and the value of it is so high, but dude, I didn't have data. I had accounting data. That's all I had. So I think Mm -hmm. I have a higher developed intuition and data, data does speak for itself in the sense that you, you should be able to look at data and be able to interpret it. It doesn't mean you're going to be able to know what it means, right? It's one thing to be like, oh yeah, the data is there. It doesn't mean it's not telling you the action to take because of the data. So when you're cruising through data, like 67% of jobs are data enabled. So almost everyone listening deals with data. So if you think about that, you, you know, you kind of swim through the data, you plot it and you read the data, but that's like what individual contributors do. If you're a leader or a manager, you're digging in the data to find one of two things. Is there a problem? Or is there an opportunity? That's it. Like I've challenged people to say, is there any more insights you find than that in the data? And nobody's, <laughs> maybe they're saying it behind my back, but no one's told me to my face that there's a <laughs> difference. So the, the sense of finding a problem or opportunity, that's it. So, so does the data tell you exactly the problem or opportunity? No. In fact, my data would have told me to not cut customers during COVID. The data would have said not to do that. That would be dumb, right? But I did not. I, I went with my intuition. I let the data inform me, but but my data did not tell me what decision to make. I had to couple that with my intuition and then move forward. So that's what to me, you know, data does speak for itself in plain terms, but it does not direct you in the direction to go. You have to make that decision yourself and wrap words around it. So you can have a chart, you can distribute a chart to a hundred people and a hundred people might interpret that chart differently. So that's why, well, we encourage obviously you to take the chart, put it on a slide, surround it with language, annotate it, point to things, point to the gap, you know, like overlay a bunch of visuals on top of it. So people get what you think the data is telling you and pass that around and let people chew on it and contend with that. Um, Because if you're not saying, well, I interpret that the data means we need to take this action, well, then whoop-dee-doo because you know you're not solving a problem or an opportunity with the data yeah and i agree with that and it's interesting because i've you know i started this podcast strategic financial leadership because i thought there's a a massive gap out there especially with financial leaders so when i was at ernst and young you know one of my large clients um, was in financial services and what i found is that the the finance team they were so into the numbers right they had like these reports these massive reports and excel spreadsheets and they were just nerding out with the numbers and then leadership they were like on the the strategy side and they were just coming up with these platitudes you know like we're going to be the best company and like we're going to grow and take over market share and maximize shareholder value and just like these platitudes. So there's a massive disconnect between strategy and finance. And that's where this whole idea or theme came from. And so I've taught a course about it. I've written about the future of the CFO and everything else. And it really comes down to, it's like, as a leader, whether you're a CFO or a VP of finance, or whether you're, you know, an operator or operations, it's how do you like understand the story behind the numbers? Like to your point, right? Like, how do you understand the story 
how do you communicate that story? And then how do you actually take action? Because nothing's worse than sitting in a meeting and you're going over, you know, financials for the month or you're looking at the performance of the company and you're just saying, well, you know, revenue increased by 3.2% last month. And this, and it's like, so what was it supposed to be 10% and it's three or like our costs are this, well, what are they supposed to be? Like, what's the number saying? And then how am I leaving the meeting? And then I'm going to go act on it. So I, I think that's like the massive gap that exists. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you said something kind of interesting that triggered a thought at the beginning where you felt like there was a gap between kind of the practitioners and the strategists or execs or whatever. And mm-hmm. for the body of research I did for data story, it was interesting. I went into what we would call slide docs. I wrote a book called slidedocs.com. So it's denser form. Um, and the insights came from pulling thousands of slide docs from my customers and, and they would plot a chart and then we or, and or they would surround these plotted charts with words. And I pulled the words off the slides and sorted them all like crazy awesome. But then, and that's how the data story came about. But the interesting thing was I went and did the same thing, but with their formal presentation. So a slide doc, you distribute and circulate for decision-making, but a staged talk is something where you're trying to rally people to transform and, you know, and, and take action. And, mm-hmm. and it was so funny because the words in the presentations were very much more, I think you were, I don't know what you were calling them, more cliche or whatever. Yeah. They were a little more cliche, like imagine a future where blah, 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 right? It, they were very different how they spoke to the data when it was in service of a decision or in service of a, like a strategy versus in service of tr- changing the company. Um, but, you know, the big insight I found when I pulled all the words off these slide docs and slides, I sorted them. I just, I know my job sounds super exciting. <laughs> That's what I did. Like I had a spreadsheet. I put the verbs in a column, the adverbs, the adjectives, like nouns, the whole thing. And the best part was, were the verbs. And, and I found like a polarity or a, or a gap in the types of verbs. Some of the verbs were process verbs. And some of the verbs were performance verbs. And the process Mm. verbs would be small tasks that you could do to combine together that would have an outcome. But it was like you either had done that or you hadn't. But the performance verbs were larger, um, more expansive, like you may have a KPI or an OKR around it. And so in the book, it's very powerful. It's one of the powerful insights in the book is when you're approaching an exact for them to fund your idea for a hundred million dollars, you need to use expansive verbs where it's like, instead of saying something like, we need to add another flavor to our chips, to our potato Mm -hmm. chips or something, it would be like, we need to capture market share through flavor innovation. Those are two completely different things. And so I think that was the one of the bigger insights well, there was a lot of insights. I loved writing that book, but it, 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 it's just how you frame things and, and you can frame your recommendations from data in a three-act story structure too. And that's really powerfully displayed in the book too. To talk about that briefly, give an overview of that piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just like in story way back, I think Aristotle was the first one to document a three-act story structure. So if you're going to make a recommendation from data, um, act one would be, hey, here's the problem or here's the opportunity I found in the data. It might be, um, we are, you know, it could be something like, wow, we're selling a whole lot less or I think we should. It might be something like, I'm gonna make one up here. 
I think we should invest more in webinars, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. what well, that's the opportunity. The middle is, um, would state the data that you want to have change. Now, it could be change for good because there's an opportunity, or it could be it needs to reverse because you're headed toward a problem. So the middle is you state the data says this, like this is what the data said I found in the data. Therefore, we need to, and act three is take this action. And you can, those actions are defined by the verbs. I have a page of verbs in the book. So it's like, that's the three-act structure. Here's the problem or opportunity is act one. Here's what the data says. And then the solution is if we if we do this action, we will change the data because that's ultimately what you want. An opportunity sure. would make the data go your positive direction and then in um, negative data, you want to reverse the, tra- the trajectory of that. So is, is there something that, that you see is like a, a common misstep when it comes to data? Like do people misuse data in a certain way or you're like anything that people do that like makes you like cringe like ah don't don't do that with data or say that with data or communicate in this way like what are your thoughts on that i think i think people think when you're in data that it has to be boring and and i think it's when people just stand up with a bunch of charts and just read the axes or don't really unpack the meaning behind it or just flip through it assuming people know or familiar mm-hmm. with your industry. So like if you're a, a biotech leader and you're speaking to a big fancy group of scientists, you could maybe geek out and there would be a lot of visual shorthand with your charts, right? Cause you're all biotech scientists. But if you were that same person speaking to a bunch of breast cancer survivors, you, you can't just stand up and use these vast charts that work as shorthand in your industry. They will not work for every audience. So I think people just assume that everyone's in it. When you're an engineer, everyone's an engineer and you don't have to modify how you show up and you do need to modify how you show up. And I think that it goes back to empathy, I guess, yeah, it goes back the way to it started, right. Is, is, yeah, that's kind of how it all rolls at that point. What if somebody's like terrible at communication, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, is there any hope for them? Or do you have to have like these innate skill sets like embedded within you to be effective? Or like, is there hope if you're just like not great at communication, expressing your ideas, like having influence, so on and so forth? Uh, Being excellent at anything takes work. So it all depends. Like if you have a high stakes talk, you really should put the work in it. It was interesting after we kind of joined up with Ted and we really kind of influence them and how they show up on stage and how their slides are and all that stuff. And I remember I was in a group of people and um, I was like, well, what do you miss now that everything's gotten a little bit more polished and stuff? And they're like, you know what? We, we just loved it when a scientist would show up and he'd be so nervous. He might pee a little, you might even see it on his pants or whatever. <laughs> but we knew he was showing up as his true self. Like I, I think, I think people want people to be their authentic selves instead of pretending there's someone else. So some of the people with some of the most important messages to tell won't tell them because they feel like they're an inferior communicator. So I would implore those who really have some high stakes message where they're not comfortable, but their message is important. Just put the elbow grease in it because then your messages can change more people and ultimately change the world. I like that. And just like, like you said, just showing up and being authentic. I think that that goes a far way. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, there's a lot of people out there that they, they try to 
start their own business. They have an idea, they have a passion. Um, they're willing to work hard. I mean, do you think those types of things are like ingredients for, I don't want to say guaranteed success, but I don't even know what my question is, but it's, I guess it's more like, (laughs) you know, some people, I think they work hard their whole entire career and, or they, they build a business and it just, I mean, it's fine. Right. But it, it it doesn't become like highly successful or well-regarded or maybe their reach isn't, isn't as far as they'd like it to be with your journey. I mean, you've, you've been successful, you've written books. I mean, is it just a matter of like grinding it out and like sticking to something and like narrowing your focus or what do you think has allowed you to be successful so far? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I love this question because I was shocked uh, about two months ago um, someone asked me, what would you do differently today? And I was like, I probably wouldn't start a business, which sounded, mm-hmm. it came out of my mouth before I realized how it came across. When I started this business, it was kind of simple. You put, you just have passion, and moxie and hard work and drive. You put a shingle out and you're in business. Well, today there's regulation. There's tons. I mean, we always paid our taxes We were, for the amount of regulation that it was back then. And, and now it's like, there's IT security compliance and you have to get certified. And if you're going to work with a big company, you have to comply to everything they have to comply to. And it's, it's expensive. And I think I could be scrappier. I think when we were smaller and today you have to know a lot more about governance and know a lot more about that. But I think when I said it, I was just kind of in the throes of like, negotiating another MSA where they were demanding even more of me, you know? Right, and right. so it's just, you know, I, I, now you have to have lawyers review every contract when back then they were a page long and now they're 50, you know, it's just different. It's just a different world, which I think is going to make it. So a young entrepreneur today is going to have to be more disciplined and more scrappy and probably even smarter, you know? And when I was starting out, I just read every issue of HBR that came cover to cover to cover. So I always knew exactly what was on the minds of every CEO. And that's one of the reasons people listened to me was I was so well read. And all those things are covered today. All these, what I consider roadblocks today, it's all still covered in the latest issues. So I don't think that's as big of a problem, but it it definitely takes a lot of passion and kind of to use a spiritual term, I would say people have to be called to do this because it's non-trivial how demanding and hard it is. And, and you can't be in it for yourself. I think you would learn, you would lose steam if you made it all about the money you could make. For me, it's about the, the staff that I get to shepherd, the ones that I get to like call, you know, my own in a way. And it's about the lives that the firm changes. Um, Otherwise it would be easier to not, you know, keep my skin in the game, but that's what gets me up every day. No, and I agree with that because I think so many people have this misconception that entrepreneurial, like being an entrepreneur is is very sexy or it's like, oh yeah, I'm on business, I'm on business cards, I'm my own boss, I could put CEO on my LinkedIn profile. But once you get to the reality of it, it's like, yeah, you're you're sacrificing, you know, relationships and sleep. And I mean, you're just there's just, there's a lot to it. It does, you know, I mean, sure. You could probably be successful by putting in that four hour work week or whatever. Uh, but it's, it's also, I, I think it just, it requires and demands a lot more and it's not for everybody. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> and you got to surround yourself with 
an executive team that's very entrepreneur-like. And we're in a season now where we're moving from a, an entrepreneurship to a professionally managed firm. And that seems weird after 30 some years to just now be doing that, but to get to the scale we're about to be hit with, not hit with, but that we're creating, uh, it's different, it's different. And I remember when um, I realized that I wasn't the central figure anymore, I hired a guy, he was a general manager and I was so swamped, I was so completely buried. I hired him and I said, can your first thing be just observe what I do and write a job description for that and hire that person? Like, I didn't even have time to pause and say, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> and so he did that first few weeks, wrote job descriptions for a few roles that he thought should offload me and set me free. And I remember when the job description was complete, he'd hand it to me and I would take it home at night and I would mourn the loss of that activity in my life. Because I loved it as entrepreneurs, right. right? We love to kind of do everything. We love spinning a lot of plates. But I knew if I didn't mourn it as if it was dead, I wouldn't let the person that was going to fulfill that role express that same position in their own way. So there's phases where when we were small, I had to do that. And now I'm going through it again. It's easier by all means, because I see my own freedom in this future, but it also feels constraining to put these rigid systems in and I'm, oh, you know, <laughs> you know, but that's what we're having to do. I don't think I'll mourn the loss of anything this time around, but it's hard. I mean, it was hard and, and it was worth it though. Absolutely. Well, it, it's, um, you know, you've done a lot of amazing things uh, throughout your career and, you know, I definitely hold your company in, in high regard. So, you know, I, I appreciate you being on the show, even though it took you forever <laughs> to get on here. Um, but I'm glad I was patient. So, um, but no, it, it's been a wonderful conversation. And I could always tell the, the good episodes because they go so quickly. I look at the clock and I'm like, wow, yeah. it's, already, it's already time. So, but thank wow. you, Nancy, for being on the show and, and just, you know, your message is, is far reaching and, and how amazing is that, that you're able to impact so many people um, through your work and in your company as well. And they get to go out there and be better communicators, which influences more people. And it's just like this massive impact that you get that's exponential. So um, congratulations on all your success. Uh, Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.